Welcome to the Convention of States Legacy Podcast, a weekly program that looks back at historic content from our archives. We hope you are educated and inspired by today's edition. On January 31st, 2017, the Arizona House of Federalism, Property Rights, and Public Policy Committee held a hearing on the Convention of States Action Resolution. Later that year, the Arizona legislature voted to become the ninth state to join the COS movement. The Committee on Federalism, Property Rights, and Public Policy is now in order. Um, could you please note the, the role? And um, we're gonna, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make a, just a really quick statement. We have four bills that all reference Article 5 of the Constitution. And I just want to give those folks uh, here in the committee, as well as uh, those folks in the audience, just a real quick snapshot of Article 5. Um, prior to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, there were approximately 14 federal conventions that occurred. Uh, those were conventions where delegates were sent from the, the colonies uh, to discuss issues of national importance. And um, since the convention, well, actually, uh, let me back up. Including those 14 uh, early conventions of the states or, or uh, federal conventions, uh, altogether there's been approximately um, between 40 and 50 conventions of the states that have occurred in our history as a nation. And again, they're delegates that come together uh, to address issues of national importance oftentimes. Um, one... There, there might be some folks in the audience that are very concerned about a runaway convention. And I, I always like to talk about uh, the convention of 1861. So just, pri just prior to our nation falling into civil war, we had uh, the state of Virginia requested a convention of the states to try to uh, come to a, a decision that would keep us from going to war. And for approximately two weeks in Washington, D.C., uh, delegates met, and oftentimes uh, they met in the evening because it was too hot during the day, and so they were working by candlelight and by the lanterns. And it was not a convention uh, to actually propose an amendment to the Constitution, but they ended up doing so anyway. And they provided uh, the framework for an amendment, a proposed amendment, uh, that they provided to Congress, and uh, Congress never did anything with it. And there are historians that believe that if Congress had actually enacted and proposed that amendment, uh, that they might have kept uh, the Civil War from occurring. So the reason I bring up the Convention of 1861 is because um, if you're going to have a runaway convention, if you're going to have a convention where the delegates uh, are not following uh, the subject for the for why they came together in a convention. It would have happened in 1861 when the North and South were ready to put their, you know, go to war over issues. And, and, um, and as we all know, you know, many, many Americans ended up dying because of, of the Civil War. So it gives me hope that, um, that our founders uh, uh, who passionately argued for Article Five to be included in the Constitution, uh, that they, they truly believed in this process. And, and the process actually goes back to 16th century England. It was borrowed uh, by the framers of our Constitution when they added it to our Constitution. And um, so that's, that's uh, we have four bills that all have to deal with Article Five, And I just wanted to give you that primer before we start. 
And uh, so the first bill is, um, we're, are you all ready? It is Kelly uh, Townsend's bill. Um, Mr. Chairman, I move the House Bill 2010 receive a due pass recommendation. Thank you. Staff, thank you. Good afternoon, good afternoon, committee member, chairman and committee members. House Concurrent Resolution 2010 urges Congress to call an Article 5 convention of the states to propose amendments to the United States Constitution that will impose physical restraints on the federal government, limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and limit the terms of officer or its officials and members of Congress. It also instructs the Arizona Secretary of State to transmit copies of this resolution to specified individuals. With that, I'm available for questions. Thank you. Uh, members, any questions? Thank you very much. And the bill sponsor. You can identify yourself for the, the record. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chair, for the record. <clears throat> Excuse me, Representative Kelly Townsend, District 16. And thank you for um, putting this bill on the calendar. And before we begin, I just want to acknowledge that Representative Thorpe was studying and actively involved in the Article 5 movement before, long before it was cool. So we look thank to you. him as one of our, our experts on the topic, and I want to thank you for your diligence and, and steadfastness with this issue. Thank you. Uh, the other person I would like to recognize, too, who never really did get his his due is uh, this gentleman right here whose photo hangs on my wall in my office when you come to see me you will see him behind me this is George Mason and George Mason was a brilliant man who uh, at his own peril actually George Washington wrote uh, later that George Mason was his former friend and uh, <laughs> And, and there's a long story behind that, but um, he, he had the courage to stand up and say that something else needs to happen when it comes to amending the Constitution. They had discussed how that was going to happen and it was going to go through Congress, but George Mason actually had the wisdom and the foresight to see that there was going to come a day when the federal government, when Congress itself was, gonna be coming, was going to become out of control and they themselves would not pass an amendment to bring control of themselves. And so that it was his wisdom that, said, that he put forth, we need to provide an alternative way for the Congress to be held accountable. And that alternative way is what I call Part B of Article 5. And that is when states, when 34 states petition Congress for an Article 5 convention that they can come together and convene and propose their amendments to the Constitution. And hopefully those here in this committee have studied Article 5 and how it works. And uh, I won't belabor it uh, because I trust that you understand the basic uh, principles. What I do want to talk about here today is the other thing that George Mason thought of and did, as well as our other founders, of what would happen in the event that there was a runaway convention. That seems to be the biggest fear. And I want members that we understand fully, let's imagine there was, in the very unlikely case, a runaway convention. And let's imagine the worst possible amendment that could come out of that convention. 
Some would fear that turning Roe v. Wade over would be a bad thing and would fight against this process just in case that might be what came out. On the other side, others might fear and worry that the Second Amendment might be redefined. And that would be the amendment that came out of this convention. And that's what is feared. And uh, a lot of people have spent many years fighting against this because they're afraid that might happen. What I would ask you today is to consider that if that were to happen and the very unlikely chance that an amendment would come out, the convention ran away and out of that convention came an unsavory amendment, is that now law, now that it came out of the convention? Is that amendment law now? Did the convention create this new law? The answer obviously is no. It would have to still go through 38 states to be ratified. And we do not have 38 states on either side that would ratify. Even if they were all 38 states red or all 38 states blue, we still don't have consensus among each side on what's good and what's not good. So George Mason and his colleagues realized that this safeguard is going to make this process safe. I would finalize with my experience over the last three years with the Assembly of State Legislatures where we came together to form a set of rules for this convention. And in that process, it was very tumultuous. Once each side wanted what they brought forth and felt that uh, they weren't going to leave unless they got it. And it took three years, a lot of, a lot of rumbling and wrestling, and, and eventually we realized not one side was going to control the outcome. Each side needed the other if we were going to come up with a viable product. And in that exercise, members, it proved to me that there isn't a way for one side to ram through and get what it is that they want without the help of the other side, which then brings the issues, the amendments, and everything that's done to the center enough to where there won't be a runaway convention. I would also petition that if, if it's brought up that, well, the con Constitutional Convention ran away in 1787, didn't it? And it was supposed to be the Articles of Confederation, but what came out was something different. I would also remind us that was when the country was 11 years old. Malleable, changeable, fixing the things that they didn't foresee. We are now, how many years later, set in stone, Supreme Court, and a process that we cannot just come out of a convention with a bad amendment and that somehow now is law. There is protections involved and, and our good friend George Mason could see that. We see that. And today when you vote, you're going to be making a vote based on one of two things. The courage of the founders. Will we join George Mason in stepping forward in faith? Stepping forward in, this is a constitutional provision that was given to us that we have never taken an opportunity to use. Are we going to have the faith and the courage of the founders, or are we going to stand in fear and turn our backs on what was provided for us when it comes time to address the problems of this country through this constitutional amendment? And with that, I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Any questions for the bill sponsor? Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. I actually do have a oh, question. Oh, you're, you're going very fast. Mr. Chairman, if I may, um, Ms. Townsend, um, and I, this question will probably show my ignorance, but um, if we pass this 
um, if we pass this legislation and there is in fact a convention of states and if it turns into something that the voters of Arizona uh, don't approve of and this this body does not approve of would we have the ability to recall or change that legislation or once we do it it's immutable we're on a pathway that we have no return mr. chair and Representative Stringer, if I understand you correctly, if we do not pass this legislation and then a convention does happen, can we put forth new legislation to join the convention? Am well, I, I, it, the question was slightly different. If we do, in fact, pass this legislation and we are part of the Convention of States and the Convention of States turns into something we don't anticipate, a runaway convention, for example, would we have the ability to change the legislation and recall our representation? And thank you, Mr. Chair and Representative Stringer. Our first time going through this, it was 2014, Representative Thorpe actually ran the Delegate Limitation Act. And several of the bills that are coming through will have some form of that within the bill. And so there's, there's options that we can do, and I'll let Representative Thorpe speak to that as well. But there are things that we can do to recall our members if things begin to go sideways. If one of our members, one of our delegates starts discussing an amendment that wasn't part of the call, in the initial call and they are going to, we can then however we word it when we have our delegate limitation act we have the right to recall our members we have the right to remove all of our delegates and so there's there's safeguards in that respect as well so if i may mr chairman so just to to in sum that the state of arizona will retain some control over their representatives at this convention of states and mr chair and representative stringer that is correct during the assembly of state legislatures we had quite a bit of discussion about that there was some folks that felt like the convention itself should control that but the overarching um, sentiment of the states themselves were that it should be up to each individual state to make the decision on how they will control their delegates and there, like I said there was a, just a couple of states that felt that the, mm -hmm. the convention itself should control the delegates however what won out by a large majority is that this is a state-by-state -state situation that we should retain our rights on how to control our delegates. Thank you. And Mr. Chairman, um, if I may, Ms. Townsend, am I understanding correctly, you have been part of these preliminary meetings to establish ground rules for the Convention of States. Is, am I correct? Mr. Chair and Representative Stringer, that's correct. This is Assembly of State Legislatures. The rules that were adopted by that assembly are not the official rules. They are proposed rules. The convention itself will uh, look at those rules, look at rules proposed by other groups as well. Uh, several groups now have come together with different options, many of them very similar. But uh, that, that organization, the Assembly of State Legislatures, has been meeting since uh, fall of December of 2013, twice a year. And I've been able uh, to go to each one of those and, and walk through the process. And as I said, um, Representative Stringer and Mr. Chair, it was very enlightening. When I first went through, I had an agenda. I felt that we had the majority. We ought to just get what we were asking for. <coughs> And it didn't work out that way. We had to we had to work together with both sides. It was a very um, educational experience, and it helped me to realize that the the safety of this process. It's it's not uh, exactly easy. It was difficult to to go through those motions, but in the end, everyone was pleased. We no one got everything, but everybody got something. So it, it was uh, a very encouraging process. Thank you for your testimony and your good work on this issue. Thank you. And um, <clears throat> uh, Mr. Stringer, in, in uh, the tradition of, of the almost 50 <coughs> uh, 
conventions of states that have already occurred, the uh, federal conventions, uh, it's typically uh, uh, one state gets one vote. So if you send one delegate or you send 100 delegates, your state gets one vote. It's a uh, simple majority as far as proposing an amendment to the, uh, to the Constitution and that the, uh, the delegates that go are representatives of the, le of the legislature. So the, the legislature has the authority to recall them if um, uh, they go down a path that we have not uh, given them discretion on. Thank you for that clarification. Thank you. <coughs> I think that's it. Thank you very much. Um, Members, uh, Mr. Chair, I do have another question. Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah please. Sorry, you can feel, come on back. Feel free to come on up. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Tony. And, and thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Representative Townsend. So, is there any precedent in terms of limiting the scope of the convention? Like, who's going to keep who accountable? And is there is there like a, a limit to what they can do? Because I guess what where my concern really falls under is that if there is this runaway convention who keeps who accountable i know you've mentioned that that we will are we like the state of arizona going to keep our delegates accountable thank you mr chair and representative navarrete the way that i understand it is that each state has a delegate limitation act and as i said before there's a balance of enough states on both sides that as we see the convention running away each state is passing the the delegate limitation act to remove their their members and then the quorum is then lost and the convention cannot go forward and uh if i'm if i may uh, also try to answer your question uh the convention just like when congress proposes an amendment to the constitution um once Congress proposes that amendment, once the states propose an amendment to the Constitution, nothing changes at that point. So, for example, if you had a convention where uh, they propose an amendment to give every congressman a free swimming pool, uh, then uh, 34, e either 34 of, uh, of our congressmen, three, or three quarters, or excuse me, two thirds of our Congress would have to propose that amendment, or two thirds of the state. Three quarters of the state, 38, would have to ratify it. So that's the, the final check and balance. So any amendment uh, that is proposed, in this case, in a convention, would have to be ratified uh, by uh, 38 states before it actually became part of the Constitution. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Kelly. Representative Townsend. Uh, Mr. Chair, and just to clarify, there has never actually been a, an Article V convention in, this in our current Constitution, correct? Um, there, there's no. Uh, we've never had an actual convention. So the closest that I'm aware of that we we came to having a convention was in the 1980s when we had approximately uh, 32 of the required 34 states, uh, and that was for a, uh, a balanced budget amendment. And at that time, uh, Congress actually took up the mantle and, and, and tried to pass a, um, a balanced budget amendment and uh, failed to do so. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. All right, uh, we, we have quite a few people signed in that want to speak to this uh, particular bill. And so I, I apologize to members, but we're going to really kind of, seeing how we, we started almost an hour late, we were late on the floor, of course. And, and so um, I'm going to limit uh, uh, questions from members to the very end. 
uh, or comments, I should say, to the very end. We can't have, uh, we'll never get out of here if we have comments on each person that testifies. Uh, for the folks out in the audience, we're going to limit your testimony to three minutes each. And, uh, and we're going to just go right through the list. And, and um, so my guess is, I haven't even looked at the other bills, but I know on this first bill, we have about 10 people that want to testify in the bill. I would encourage people in the audience, if you are signed up to testify in the bill, and if somebody else basically you know, gets up and makes a statement that you know, covers you know, what your co comments are, your concerns are, uh, if you come forward, maybe you can say ditto. <laughs> Or you can just, uh, you know, say, yeah, I agree with so-and-so who just spoke or, or what have you, just so we can kind of keep moving this forward uh, so that we're not here late. Uh, so uh, thank you very much. And Mr. Vice Chair, if you could, um, and actually, have, we did move the bill, didn't we? Yes. Yep. Thank you. We, we took care of that. So if you could uh, start with our, our first person. All right, Mr. Chairman, uh, first person up to speak is David Marcus. Mr. Marcus, if you're in the room, please come to the podium, give your name for the record, and you'll have three minutes. I've got a timer here, so we're good. Okay. Thank you very much. My name is David Marcus. <clears throat> I'm a law professor and a resident of Tucson. I want to thank Chairman Thorpe and the committee for uh, hearing my comments today. Um, I have about five minutes of remarks, but I understand I can only speak for three, so I'll try to keep it brief. Um, I could say everything now. I've signed to speak on all four of them if you'll let me have five minutes, or I can come back. Uh, that, that sounds reasonable. Okay, thank you. Um, I am not an economist or a scholar of constitutional law, so others are better equipped to speak to the merits of the proposals before you. I write and teach about civil procedure, or to what I describe to my students as the rules of the game. So I'd like to talk a bit about rules. It's really, really, re really useful to have rules of the game set out in advance before the game gets played. Let's take an example. You might recall last January where the Arizona Cardinals defeated the Green Bay Packers in a divisional playoff game. At the start of overtime, uh, when the referee tossed the coin, the coin didn't flip. Uh, uh, although Arizona won the uh, toss, uh, the referee insisted on tossing the coin again. Now, fortunately, Arizona won the second time and ultimately won the game, a happy outcome. But can you imagine what would have happened if Green Bay won that second toss? It turns out the NFL has no rule for what's going to happen when the coin doesn't toss. How many, would have, uh, how many of us would have quietly accepted the result of the game as legitimate? I don't mean to discount the importance of football at all, but I think that when it comes to the important issues of law and politics, uh, uh, there are actually more important issues at stake. I think we can agree that when it comes to these divisive, hotly contested issues, it's important to have well-established, clear rules. We've just concluded a bitterly fought presidential election. While half the country mourns, the other half rejoices. But here's something miraculous. No one can legitimately contest President Trump's right to the office that he won because we know what the rules are and they're well established. The person who wins 270 electoral votes gets the presidency, period. In a time of bitter, deep, and unhappy partisanship, the Article 5 convention process would surely trigger intense political combat. And what is worse, this combat would play out with no clear rules. I think that the result would be a disaster. Consider all of the unanswered questions that, about the rules of the game that would arise in connection with just the first step of the convention process. The first major step is that 34 states apply for a convention calling for uh, this assembly. Article 5 then says what happens, Congress uh, shall call a convention for proposing amendments. But this clarity is deceptive. Here's one problem. How does Congress decide if 34 state legislatures actually applied for a convention? What if the resolutions aren't identical? What rule of similarity does Congress apply? Can Congress adopt some sort of timeliness rule that allows applications to lapse after, say, seven years? If a state legislature votes 30 seconds, sir. its resolution, uh, what, uh, what happens then? Here's another problem. How does Congress actually call a convention? 
Must both houses of Congress vote for one? What if one house uh, filibusters and doesn't call? Can a court review the decision not to do so? Ordinarily, courts defer on issues involving uh, matters committed to other branches of government. Would this political question doctrine apply here? If not, what remedy could a court order? What, force would, con would, would, what would force Congress to honor a, a remedy? Each of these questions would prompt deep, prolonged legal and political fighting that could easily last years, and this is just the first step. There are many such issues that attend the second step. I'm not going to go through all of them, but the most important involves delegate selection. Does Congress, as Article 5 suggests, control delegate selection? Do state legislatures? What if there's a difference? Who would resolve the issue? Does, a, does the court resolve the issue? Uh, does the convention resolve the issue? Does Congress resolve the issue? According to what standard or rule? All of the many steps along the way would involve the same uncertainty and confusion. Now, a small number of scholars have studied this issue and believe they found answers to all of the questions I've posed as many as well as the many, many others that the convention call triggers. But as I'm reminded all the time in my capacity as a scholar, there's a vast gap between theory and practice. Scholarly speculation, no matter how learned and accomplished it may be, is no substitute for clearly established and universally agreed upon rules of the game. This is especially so when it comes to the most important, controversial, and consequential issues in American law and politics. I hate to think of the worst case scenario uh, if this Article 5 process goes forward ungoverned as it will be by any clear rules. At best, the fight over every single step along the way would, under, would consume our country's political and legal oxygen for years. All of our institutions, state legislatures, Congress, the courts, would be ensnared in heed, heated partisan warfare. What room would be left for a, a presidential administration's agenda? What room would be left for Congress, a Congress that shares many of the sentiments behind the substance of some of these resolutions, to act through ordinary legislative channels? 30 seconds, sir. I do not agree with the substance of the resolutions and earnestly hope that they never become law, but I understand that many of, in this room support them in good faith, and I appreciate that. Still, I hope you'll consider the legal and political carnage that your vote might help unleash. Whatever we think of the limits of the federal government's power, I hope we can agree that the game without clear rules to keep the peace is not one that our country can, uh, uh, Ill, uh, 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 can easily bear to play. Thank you very much. I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Next. Mr. Tony Massaro. Tony, if you're in the room, please come to the podium, give your name, and you have three minutes. Uh, yes, ma'am, that's how you signed in. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here and appreciate your time. It's the first time I've been to the legislature in this capacity of, of uh, coming to you on something like this in 27 years of teaching constitutional law and 10 years as dean. So I see the importance of what you are deliberating, uh, but I'm here entirely as a citizen, not as a professor, um, but as somebody where I hope it can be a little bit of use. I believe it's a time for constitutional sobriety. I think it's a time for us to keep our powder dry and not to move on an uncharted course of potential fundamental disruption of the rules of the game, as my colleague just said. We are not the founding fathers, as was put forward before, because they faced a completely different set of perils. They were in the aftermath of a bloody, expensive, and in many ways devastating revolutionary conflict. We just can't map onto our time of relative, despite our problems, prosperity and peace. We have the luxury of perspective and the benefits of two centuries of experience. I don't have to remind you what we've endured. The Civil War, World War I, World War II, the Korean conflict, the Vietnam conflict, 
my nephew in Afghanistan, you know, ongoing uh, situations in which our nation is going to face and has faced perils, and it's done so with grave fiscal declines without pulling this particular emergency cord. And yet we were able to rise and renew, and we did rise, despite all of the feelings right now. Just last week, the Dow Jones Industrial Average hit its highest point ever. The newly elected administration has pledged to further stimulate our economy while also cutting government regulation by 75 percent. That's a staggering figure. They've barely begun to experiment with bold and untested ends, and they have the benefit of a Congress that is in support, basically, of their mission. I do not think this is the time to fetter them with new constitutional limits, and as they struggle to experiment, it's a, it's a fact, a constitutional limit changes your capacity to alter a court. 30 seconds, ma'am. This would be disastrous if convened because all it's been admitted here. While you had a convention that could, to discuss the possibilities, it has no force of law. This was a group of like-minded people invested in the benefits of this process, and they couldn't agree. They ultimately hammered out an agreement, but this is just the first gong all of you, first gone. They've been thinking about it for three years, but soon we'll all be thinking about it. And every one of the preceding questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for addressing us today. Next up, we have Douglas Arndt. Douglas, if you're in the room, you have three minutes, sir. Please give your name at the podium for the record. Thank you, Chairman Thorpe and the committee. I appreciate addressing this. And uh, in three minutes, much could be said that hasn't even been covered yet. I'd like to comment on your, um, uh, to a point on your runaway convention comment, but maybe later in the questions if we want to go there. I want to focus on solutions. This is the short end that, that never really gets a lot of attention. We we talk a lot about, and it's, it's worth talking about the things that, uh, go into the makeup of the convention, however named, whatever process. Congress did a subcommittee hearing on this, and uh, they had law professors on both sides of the issue. They had scholars and they had members and other people who were involved and very worthy to speak on it. And the sum total of their recommendation after the hearing to Congress was, we don't know. We can't seem to come to a conclusion on this. And this is so, this has been as a result of one of the some 50 bills that have been entered into Congress for a balanced budget, one way or another. But I want to focus on solutions, and that is that there are a number of things that we haven't really even discussed much or, um, or gotten to the bottom of and pressed it and included it in some of the bills. Now, I wish we had been more involved in the process where we could have equal portion to divide, uh, to define the problem and to define solutions. Constitutionally speaking, whenever the federal government passes a measure not provided for in its limited roster of enumerated powers, those acts are not the final word. In fact, the president can't even do a, a presidential order without review by the courts now. Instead, they're merely acts of usurpation when they're extra constitutional and they do not qualify as supreme law of the land, and yet Congress goes ahead and, and uh, acts on these, especially in unconstitutional spending. And this is the biggest problem that we are really trying to address. So 
if Congress establishes supreme law of the land inadvertently through unconstitutional spending, and we pass a balanced budget amount, we end up enshrining <laughs> illegal debt into the constitutional process. This is what a lot of us are concerned about, because that checks and balances. The teeth are not there in the bills. Another thing is misinterpreting seconds, the supremacy sir. clause. Excuse me? 30 seconds. Uh, misinterpreting the supremacy clause. Uh, the use of nullification, and I want to say thank you for HB 2097. We really need to work on nullification. It's not the result of obtaining a favorable court ruling or petitioning the government to start or stop anything. It is a refusal on the part of state government to recognize unconstitutionality. We want to stop pretend nullification, declaring uh, opposition to any proposed or existing Time. administrative regulations. We really want to pursue nullification. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And I'd be glad to speak to a point in question. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Chairman, we have uh, speaking for the bill, Mr. John Major. Mr. Major, if you would, please come to the podium, give your name for the record, and you have three minutes, sir. Thank you. I'm uh, John Major. I live in Lakeside, Arizona. I'm a retired attorney. I uh, want to underscore the uh, uh, some of the uh, questions and objections uh, to the uh, Convention of the States. Uh, some of the uh, the limitations the, that would that are designed to uh, keep uh, keep this from being a runaway convention and keep uh, Arizona from participating in a runaway convention. If you look at uh, numbered uh, first numbered paragraph of uh, HCR 2010 it says. Uh, the legislature of the state of Arizona formally applies to the Congress of the United States to call a convention of the states limited to proposing amendments to the Constitution of the United States that impose fiscal restraints on the federal government, limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and limit the terms of office for federal officials and for members of Congress. And then uh, paragraph three states, this application is revoked, withdrawn, nullified, superseded, retroactive to the date in, of enactment. If the application is used for the purpose of calling a convention or is used in support of conducting a convention to amend the Constitution of the United States for any purpose other than to impose fiscal restraints on the federal government, limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and limit the terms of office for federal officials and members of Congress. In other words, if it becomes a runaway convention, the, uh, by uh, the very terms of uh, this resolution uh, would actually uh, nullify the uh, legislature's passage of the resolution uh, retroactive to the date of its passage so that uh, if 34 states were to pass it and it became a runaway convention, Arizona's withdrawal would uh, bring things to a grinding halt. So there's a, a very serious uh, uh, limitation here. And uh, 30 seconds, sir. I would like to uh, congratulate the drafters of this document uh, uh, for that. So also the uh, uh, issue of uh, of rules and who are who are the delegates 
each state would select its delegates. Uh, I think it's pretty uh, self-evident, uh, either by the legislature or by uh, referendum uh, proposed, uh, you know, put into effect by the re legislature. Uh, Time, sir. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Mr. Chairman, next up is Barbara Bluster. Ms. Bluster, if you're in the room, please approach the podium, give your name for the record, and you have three minutes, ma'am. And if you can uh, tell, tell my members about your uh, past uh, allegiance or alliance with uh, this uh, body. Uh, you're going to give me a little minute? extra time to do that? Give me well, an extra minute. It shouldn't take, it shouldn't take you long. Just, uh, just uh, let them know how you used to serve here. <laughs> well, I served in the 44th legislature, which was 1999 and 2000. And um, it doesn't seem possible. It's been that many years ago. Thank but you. The, uh, <laughs> yeah. Now, just give me 30 more seconds to add a little something else. This <laughs> is ahead. the 34th year I have worked on this issue. Mm -hmm. This has been around a long time. When we started, it was 1983, when 32 states had passed CONCON bills. My job then was to get them rescinded from Arizona. We had eight calls on the books. They had to do with um, uh, prayer in school and burning the flag and uh, all, all these kind of things that would appeal to conservatives, because conservatives were the ones who had to be changed into accepting the idea of a constitutional convention. We were, the, we were to be the putty. Anyway, I'll go back to, you can start counting me now. Except that by, in, 2000, in 2003, we rescinded all of Arizona's past calls for a CONCON. And that took us 20 years, because you guys keep changing places. You know, and we have to come back and teach you again because of a runaway convention. So I just want to add to this that Florida, uh, so I guess you're counting me now, so I'll get to my paper fast. Florida in 2012 um, passed five resolutions for CONCON. Now that's just, you know, a few short years ago. That was to uh, repeal or modify the Second Amendment to get rid of, uh, approve Obama, Obamacare, get rid of the Electoral College, and all the things that communists and one world people want. And that is, so how are you going to kick out of Florida and their resolutions? They might change by then, but you don't know. So I want to talk about, you want to rein in federal power. But um, by the way, in Black's Law Dictionary, fifth edition, page 282, it says a constitutional convention is called that way for framing, revising, or amending its constitution. So some people want to say, oh, this is not a constitutional convention. It is a constitutional convention. All right. The, I want to talk just about the idea of reigning in government. Article 1, Section 8, lists the powers of Congress. Congress shall have the power to raise taxes, raise money. One, to pay the debts of the United States. Two, to pay for the common defense. And three, for um, uh, general welfare. So you have articles 10 through 16 are for the common defense. Articles 2 through 9 are for general welfare. And then you have the 18th, which says uh, you can make all laws which are necessary and proper for carrying into execution those foregoing powers. 
How in the world are you going to cut what they've given us? There's no need to cut any of that, is there? So what we have to do, there's this blessed Tenth Amendment, and the Tenth Amendment says, Congress, if we forgot anything, Congress, you can't do that either. It's left to the states or to the people. Now, legislators, that is your job to say no to the federal government. Do you understand? You have more power than that Congress if you will use it. And so I implore you to use it. Also, I want to... 30 seconds, Ms. Blister. 30 seconds, okay. The ratification process was changed from the very beginning. Those delegates at the Constitutional Convention had orders from their states. They didn't abide them. And they passed a new constitution. Fortunately, they were very educated men who had a great deal of depth. Where are we going to find delegates at that kind of qualification today? Very few. So then they, the ratification process changed from 100%. Time, ma'am. Okay. From 100% to nine states. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. And for my extra few minutes. Thank you for your time. We appreciate having you back in our body today. Mr. Chairman, uh, next on the list is Mr. Mike Capick. Speaking for the bill, Mr. Capick, you have three minutes, sir. My name is Mike Capick, and thank you, Mr. Chair and Representatives. Um, I'm here to support all Article Five applications, but specifically HCR 2010's broader mm -hmm. and more comprehensive approach to repairing and healing the District of, District of Columbia. This is an opportunity for Arizona legislators to join other states to return the power to Arizona while maintain, retaining much of our taxes at home. It would allow us to return to constitutional governance as the founders intended for our republic. Others here speaking today as to the whys and how of the convention, but I'd like to speak to the process history. There's been a lot of contentious criticism about how the convention might work. Unfortunately, those folks have not bothered to look or study the history of the process itself. <coughs> Even with the attempts in the 70s and 80s for the state convention to rally the state convention to propose the Liberty Amendment, the ERA, and the BBA, most folks either don't know the process or have forgotten. Understandably, we're not familiar with the convention process because most of us were not around when the last one took place in Santa Fe, New Mexico in 1922. It resulted in the Colorado River Compact. There have been 40 to 50 conventions, as stated earlier, over three centuries, with records, records exist for 37 of those conventions. In fact, they occurred on average every three and a half years. That period had had an organizational format. They had an organizational format. I would like to enter into the record today a brief historical summary with sources, scholastic sources, of the recorded conventions that began in 1677 in Albany, New York. The U.S. Constitution was authored and proposed under the typical convention format, which was common at that time. As legislators, your experience centers around the system of rules and traditions you must deal with here at the Capitol every year. The origins of what you began, the origins of what you do began before the Declaration of Independence with the colonies sending representatives to legislate. They also sent representatives to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia in an effort to balance the interests of all the colonies. Both of these bodies dealt with 
as you do today, many if not hundreds of the problems that have to be resolved. 30 seconds, sir. But there is a second mode, and that's the conventions. The colonies and states sent not representatives but commissioners, individuals commissioned by their colony or state to an assembly to resolve just one subject issue. The commissioners went with instructions. They established a new set of rules, and each time they met, they elected officers to lead the process. After they presented their solutions, they debated and voted on them, and returned home to their legislators or population to ratify the proposed solution. Time, not sir. A, not a single one ran away. I'd like to enter this in the. Thank you, Mike. And and um, by the way, I was looking at the uh, our, our debt clock. It's a usdebtclock.org. And while you were speaking, our national debt went up thirteen million dollars during your uh, three minutes talk. So. <laughs> and uh, see see the bailiff on your way out if you can write him a check. So so if I limit their time, will it spend less? Uh, and unfortunately, no? All right. unfortunately, uh, the debt keeps going up twenty four hours a day. Right. So. Mr. Chairman, Charles McCorkle is next on the list. Mr. McCorkle, you have three minutes. Please give your name for the record at the podium. Hi, my name's uh, Charles Schuyler. I go by Schuyler McCorkle, and I live in Chandler and have been a uh, citizen of this great state since 1967. Uh, Chairman Thorpe, distinguished members of the Federalism Committee, thank you for this opportunity to address your uh, consideration and concern for HCR 2010. I stand in support of HCR 2010. For too long, states' rights and citizens' freedoms have been trampled on by an expanding federal government. Ever since, ever since the early 1900s, the progressive movement has been focused on increasing the size and control the federal government has over the states. Additionally, we see attacks on the original intent of the Constitution by revisionist judges of, and a Supreme Court that legislates from the bench. We have career politicians in the legislative branch that cede their power to an executive with a pen and a phone and an exec executive branch that thinks it makes law. Our forefathers were wise in the founding of our republic. They realized that government would never constrain itself. That is why they gave us a way to amend the Constitution through Article 5. Article 5 allows for the states, through elected representatives, to call for a convention for the purpose of proposing amendments to the Constitution. This is how the people, through their state representatives, can rein in the federal government. When considering HCR 2010, the real question you must answer is, who decides? Will it be the people through their state representatives, or will it be a massive federal government, or career politicians, or a legislative Supreme Court? There are those who are fearful of an Article 5 convention. They fear the convention would be a runaway, allowing for a complete rewrite of the Constitution. This is where the wisdom of the Founding Fathers has placed significant constraints on the process. Even if amendments contrary to the intent of the resolutions are released, it only takes 13 states to shoot it down. So what, what, what is it that we're really fearful of? There's a long list of conventions in various states over our history, and none have been considered a runaway from their original intent. We are Americans, and we have always faced our fears head on. I swore an oath to defend the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic. I believe in the Constitution. I believe in the process it puts forth to combat the extremes of government. I believe in the American people to do the right thing. As a military officer, I know fear. I also know how to combat it. 
Where would we be if the Founding Fathers had been too afraid to declare independence from Britain or said, hey, there are no rules for this? Or where would we be if we were too afraid to enter World War II or fight the Cold War or risk going to the moon? 30 seconds, sir. We are special as Americans, not because we don't fear. We are special because the heart of Americans believe in something greater than fear. That is why we are Americans. I ask you to do the American thing. Support HCR 2010 for all those who have gone before defending our Constitution. And lastly, ask yourself, how do you as legislators want to be remembered by your prodigy? Thank you. Thank you. Next on the list is Marcus Kelly. Mr. Kelly speaking against. Sir, if you would, please come to the podium and give your name for the record. You'll have three minutes once you give your name. Hi, my name is Marcus Kelly, uh, representing myself, and I'm uh, against this uh, HCR. Um, I'd like to, to some extent, echo exactly what uh, Mr. David Marcus said, uh, the first gentleman to speak. He's right. There are tons of... Uh, uh, aspects of the Article 5 process that are completely unexplored from, tar uh, from start to finish that will uh, result in, in all kinds of um, uh, unforeseen consequences, which is why I think in general the Article 5 uh, uh, process of going the, the route of a uh, convention for the purpose of proposing uh, amendments is uh, a pretty bad idea. Um, you know, there's there's really uh, multiple approaches to, to this. We've got Mr. Dranius's uh, compact method. We've got uh, Ms. Townsend's uh, effort, and we, we have a grand total of four bills uh, today. That, to me, shows that uh, despite any kind of efforts to control what will go on at a convention, you cannot. Every single faction out there will be warring to ensure that their amendment uh, gets out of the convention. Now, uh, Ms. Uh, Townsend's uh, findings in her HCR state that the states are a bulwark for liberty. I completely disagree with this idea. Um, it's a nice sentiment, but it's not true. Uh, you guys constantly take uh, federal money with strings attached, which increases the, the federal government's uh, tyranny. Shame on you for doing so. Uh, you guys also passed one of the very same amendments that you're complaining about, the 17th. Shame on you. You passed the 16th. Shame on you. Um, uh, so don't you know, tell me that the states are a bulwark uh, to protect liberty. Um, uh, you know, you guys, uh, well, I mean, let me move to, to the HCR itself. Um, there were, I, I'd love to be able to march through this uh, segment, segment if I've got the time. Um, you know, first of all, Section 1 of it, after the findings, is, is pretty much an open-ended call for uh, imposition of fiscal restraints, limiting the power of the uh, jurisdiction of the federal government, yada, yada, yada. You don't know what's going to come out here. You can't control that. You also can't control who the delegates are going to be. Do any of you have any certainty who Arizona is going to pick to be their delegate? What about the other 49 states? So if you don't know who the delegates are, you certainly don't have any trust in, in knowing uh, what amendments they're going to pass out um, of the um, convention. In addition, like I said, 30 seconds, sir. Thank you. And, and I'll, I'll pretty much end it with this. You know, ERA has already been brought up. I, I already brought up the, the 17th, the 16th prohibition. Um, you know, the ERA was one state shy of passing. 
you know, if you think the ERA is a great idea, then, you know, hey, maybe you can get it passed next time around. But to those of us who uh, worry that bad amendments will be ratified by the states, that should be uh, a, a warning to you. And, and I'll leave it with that. Thank you for your time. I'll stay for questions if you have any. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, members. Thank you. Okay, Mr. Chairman. Uh, next, we have uh, Jerry LaRocca. Mr. Um, I'm assuming Mr. LaRocca? Looks like a mister. Would you please come to the podium, give your name for the record, sir, and you have three minutes. Jerry LaRocca. <coughs> Excuse my cold. Jerry LaRocca. Uh, members of the committee, I come in support of HCR 2010. One of the provisions of this measure is term limits. Although these numbers from, uh, the pre are from the previous <coughs> Congress, I think you'll get the idea. 79 members of Congress have been serving 20 years or more. 16 have been serving 30 years plus. Congressional approval rating is at 15% and it hasn't been above 20% for six years. Once in, these folks don't leave. Supreme Court average age is 69 with three over 75. An example is Robert Byrd, Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia. When he entered Congress, or <clears throat> when he entered Congress, West Virginia was the second poorest state in the country. When he died in office at age 92, after 50 years of representing West Virginia, they were still the second poorest state in the country. It appears term limits is the only way to solve the, uh, this problem. Please approve HCR 2010 to get Arizona on the list of states that can ultimately put this limit into law. Thanks. Thank you. Gosh, kind of caught me by surprise. <laughs> uh, let's see. Next, we have Dennis uh, Reber. 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 Ryber, all right, Mr. Ryber. Nobody ever gets it right. Sorry for butchering it, sir. You have three minutes if you give your name at the podium. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Dennis Ryber, uh, Chairman Thorpe, uh, esteemed members of the committee, friends and fellow Arizonians. I'm here this afternoon to speak in favor of HRC 2010. The issue of convention of states has come before the legislature for the last several years, and each time it has been met with distrust, fear, and a lack of knowledge. Those who would call it a constitutional convention say we want to replace the current one. They do this because they do not understand the difference between a constitutional convention and a convention of states and believe the two terms are interchangeable when in fact they are totally different processes for totally different results. The calling for a convention of states merely means that Congress is being replaced by the states as the initiator for amendment proposals and I stress the word proposals. Those who fear this process are the same ones who are unaware that Congress itself has proposed over 10,000 amendments over the years. Our founding fathers used conventions all the time in the early years of his nation to deal with specific issues ranging from defense, finance and trade, commerce, inflation, and taxes. <coughs> I ask you, would they have used conventions if they were dangerous? I don't think so. They built the convention method into Article 5 because they knew it would come a day when the federal government would not only become far larger than they intended it to be, but foresaw a time when the government would be more interested in serving its own interests than focusing on the 18 enumerated powers granted them in Article 1, Section 8 of our Constitution. Patrick Henry once said that the Constitution is not an instrument 
for the government to restrain the people. It is the instrument for the people to restrain the government. When we, the people, are proposing amendments for our Constitution through the Convention of States, it is because the federal government has failed to stay within its prescribed boundaries and has begun to assume rights and powers that it was never granted. This is how we restrain the government, by being the initiators of a process which was prescribed in proper constitutional amendment. Paragraph 3 and 4 of this resolution both defines and limits the ability of the convention to address only three areas which have been covered before, one being the limiting of the, work, uh, the power and jurisdiction of the federal government. We are, in fact, following the lead of our founding fathers. It worked for them, and it will work for us. <clears throat> Excuse me. You have today before you the ability to bring to bear the very tool to fight an overreaching 30 seconds, government sir. and begin to return power to the states and to the people. I humbly and respectfully request that you move this resolution forward for full approval by the citizens of this state. Allow us to be part of the spearhead to return this country to the course that our forefathers intended. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We have a late entry. Alan, you guys are killing me. Wiggly? Wait. I'm sorry, sir. If you would please properly pronounce your name at the podium, and we'll have three three minutes for you. I'm not good at this. I'm telling you. It's a hard name to pronounce. I have trouble with it. It's so simple. I just. My name is Alan Wigley, and I'm standing in support of this bill. I'll be brief. I don't have any prepared announcements, but what caused me to reconsider speaking is at least, in particular, the first two commenters. Obfuscation comes to mind as being representative of their comments. If we had all of the rules, all of the what-ifs that would be needed to run this country ahead of time, we wouldn't have needed the Constitution. We are actually, if, if we give in to that line of thought, we are saying that part of the Constitution isn't really part of the Constitution. It's scary. We can't do it. Do you think any of the founders who approved and the states who ratified the Constitution as it exists didn't have some of those same thoughts in mind? But the thing that they did was they trusted the American people. And we can still trust the American people. Thank you for your representation. Thank you very much. I, um, something you said uh, made me think of a quote by John Adams. I don't have it in front of me, but I think he said something to the effect that if, uh, if men were angels, we wouldn't need laws. And um, so thank you very much. Mr. Vice Chair. You just totally threw me off. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> uh, next up, Patricia A. Levy-Andrews. Patricia, are you in the room? All right, very well. Um, let's see, Mr. Chairman, that's it. We have taken all the testimony that was requested. Well, very good. I... Um we're going we're gonna to have um, some comments from members before we vote. Um, one second, everyone. <clears throat> My computer went to sleep here. I wanted to bring something up. So 
The reason why um, seven years ago I started getting involved in uh, being concerned about Article 5, and I'll bring you up in just a second, Kelly, for some final thoughts, uh, is hmm? she wanted to have some final final comments. So we'll, we'll bring her up in just a second. Is um, I'm looking at, at the usdebtclock.org, uh, and it shows our – U.S. Uh, national debt uh, approaching 19 trillion, or actually approaching 20 trillion dollars. And what I found something that really energized me way back when was um, in 2008, candidate Obama. Um, he was he was t uh, at a campaign stop. He was talking about uh, President Bush, and and he made a comment that. Um, um, that President Bush was both uh, irresponsible and unpatriotic because uh, during President Bush, uh, the national debt, you know, after our 9-1-1 attacks and everything, our national debt had increased by $4 trillion. So President Obama referred to that as being irresponsible and unpatriotic. And then over – and they both served the same two terms, eight years. And so in eight years – President Bush increased it four trillion. Under President uh, Obama, he increased it ten trillion. And and so, I would call that you know irresponsible and unpatriotic if we're going to use his standard. Um, and in in looking at you know the the U.S. debt clock is uh, pretty amazing because it, it breaks everything down um, uh, by individuals. Um, so. Um, um, and if I can, and there's a lot of data here, but you know, uh, uh, and I'm 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 going to have trouble finding it. Well, here, let's see. No, that's probably not telling you. But at any rate, each individual when they're born in the United States with the debt that we've already increased, uh, just our national debt doesn't even include the um, uh, unpaid for um, things like you know, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, those benefits that have been stacking up as well. I I think we're up to uh, about $140 trillion. I mean, it's immense. And and the cost per individual in our in our nation is just unbelievable. And so certainly I was very motivated uh, to look at, you know, how can we solve this problem at the state level? You know, our founders gave us the authority, the Article uh, 5 authority to, uh, just as Congress, to propose amendments to, the, uh, to our uh, U.S. Constitution. And, um, and you know, I, I think under Reagan, our national debt was around a $1 trillion, and now we're approaching 20 it, I remember uh, reading that if you took a a trillion dollar bills, it's, it's equivalent to about eight and a half planet Earths if you have a stack of a trillion one dollar bills. It's, it's just inconceivable the amount of debt that we've uh, created for our children and our, and our uh, grandchildren, great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. It's just hard to imagine. And that's, that's the reason why I'm here and I'm very passionate about this issue. So with that, you know, I apologize, uh, Representative Townsend. Why don't you go ahead and, and if you can, just make it real brief. The, the speaker's waiting to come up and talk about his bills. And we still need to have our uh, panel have an opportunity. And I appreciate that, Mr. Chair, and I will be brief. You know, I want to say 
We went to the Convention of States simulated convention last year where we went through this whole process. And the best part about being there as a member of that simulated convention was that I was surrounded by brilliance. Our fellow legislators from around the country were so intelligent and so thoughtful and so careful. I do believe in you. I believe that we are up to bat. The founders were men. They are in graves right now. We are up to bat. I believe in you. I believe in my fellow Republicans. And I also believe in my fellow Democrats. I do. I think together we can do this. We are intelligent enough. We are committed enough. And I think we're brave enough. And with that, I ask you to support this bill. Thank you. Thank you. Members, any comments uh, before we vote? Mr. Chairman? If you could be brief. Uh, I will try to be very brief. Um, I, I already spoke to you once about this. I, I get very disturbed when I hear um, terms used interchangeably, CONCON, Constitutional Convention, and in Article 5. That, I believe, is the obfuscation that uh, somebody was speaking to. You don't have to raise your hand. Um, <coughs> that belies for me that belies for me uh, a, a lack of appreciation for what the words actually say and what they mean. Um, interestingly enough, Chairwoman Janet Yellen, president of the Federal Reserve, essentially said this summer, uh, just prior to our Gold Bond Ad Hoc Committee meeting, that the Federal Reserve, quote, we don't know what we're doing, end quote. Uh, she said that publicly. Right now, we are on uncharted ground and we are guessing, quote. That was a quote. Our Constitution means something. And for uh, our, the framers of our Constitution to have the wisdom to put an Article 5 convention in the very same document that they put a constitutional convention in belies their wisdom. So I think to misrepresent uh, a, an Article 5 convention as something that it is not, I think is irresponsible. Um, and point well taken. Uh, unfortunately, I was not here when the 17th Amendment was passed. I would have voted against it. So to accuse me of voting for it, I think is uh, highly inaccurate. So that's the end of my comment, sir. Thank you. And, and you know, I, I apologize. I, I think what I'd like to do is if any members um, have a comment, why don't, we, why don't we go ahead and start voting and you can explain your vote. That might be the best way to kind of move this forward. So could you um, call the roll? We are voting on uh, HCR 2010. We've already moved. We've already moved the uh, the bill. Representative Blanc, I am going to pass as I'm wanting to hear from my members. Thank you, Representative Campbell. Mr. Chairman, <clears throat> can I explain my vote? Please. <clears throat> Last year, uh, this bill became before us, and uh, I had the same thoughts then as I do now. You know, it's an imperfect world. We're imperfect people. But uh, we were given a way to amend the Constitution. And um, uh, I hear the professor and the legal arguments why it would be um, difficult and cumbersome and drawn out. And I understand all of that, and you're probably right. But then again, 
when the situation is as bad as it is now, and we've talked about the uh, the massive debt load that we have, we have total uh, politicians who die in office uh, who will never leave of their own volition. Uh, there needs to be a change. And so then the question is, we, we all agree that there needs to be changes, but then how do we do that? Well, the Congress has the power to do that themselves, but they won't. They're certainly not going to vote themselves out of office or the perks that they have. And it's incumbent upon we, the people, to keep the fire under their feet. And the Article 5 is one of the ways to do that. So I agree with the speakers who said that uh, uh, you have to trust the people. It's going to be a mess. There's no doubt about it. But I think it can be done. And um, my last statement will be quickly this. I, I live in a historic home. It's 130 years old. It's musty. You know, it needs to be aired out. The windows need to be opened up in the spring cleaning. And that's what the Article 5 is. It's a way to get at a musty institution that needs reform. And for that reason, I vote aye. Representative Grantham. Mr. Chairman, may I explain my vote? Please. I wanted to say uh, how great it is and what an honor it is to have this group of people here testifying on behalf of this bill, whether they're for or against. Everyone in this room is a patriot. And, and I want to personally thank you all for being here. We all love this country, and that's not always the case in these hearings, believe it or not. So this is quite pleasant. Um, you know, there's a lot of folks in this crowd I know, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for them. Some of them are going to be real happy, and some aren't going to be so happy, but so is politics, and that's why we get paid the big bucks. <laughs> the reality of our current place in time is that we have ingrained corrupt lifelong politicians. We have a debt that exceeds our nation's GDP. We have an out-of-control activist judicial branch. The folks in, in Washington aren't going aren't to change this. I was going to spend my time reading Article 5. You know, it's very short, but with, with this crowd, I don't think that's necessary. I'm pretty sure everybody in here has read it. And uh, I do carry my pocket constitution at all times. Um, but hearing the arguments for and against this are compelling, but quite honestly, you know, I, by trade, I'm a pilot. And if I was going down the runway and thought of everything that could go wrong every time I take that airplane down the runway, I would never have achieved flight in my entire life. And uh, for that reason, I vote aye. Representative Fernandez. And, and by the way, welcome to our committee. Thank you. And didn't <laughs> realize that F came after G. I was kind of worried there. That's okay. Got a little worried. Um, I, w I was interested to hear um, Representative Campbell say uh, talk about term limits. We have term limits here at the Arizona State Legislature, but people seem to get around that every day, don't they? <laughs> Isn't that true? I mean, it, it is true. But uh, my worry is, um, well, this is my first meeting, probably my first couple of hours here, but my worry after just listening to the testimony, and thank you so much for being here because you do come to educate. And that's definitely true because, like I said, I've been here for a couple of hours and you taught me so much. And um, I do have a lot of respect for Representative Townsend. I did read the bill. Um, but uh, when we talk about recalling delegates, sort of like talking about term limits, I, you know, the, that would be my worry is that we get to this convention, we get to a point to this convention, and there is an issue, as some of you talked about. I mean, we, it was put very eloquently by... Um, let me see the name, um, Professor Massaro and Professor Marcus, 
that um, if there was an issue, how do we recall delegates? How do we know that that could even happen? And there's a lot of unknowns. And I do understand with, with Representative Grantham, you can't move around thinking, you know, what if, what if, what if. But this is not just, you know, flying a plane, although that's very important and I rely on pilots a lot. But this is a very important thing. And how do we know how we recall delegates? Where Where is it all written? What It's a lot of unknowns. And um, for that reason, after listening to everybody, um, I would have to vote no. Representative Navarrete. Um, may I explain my vote, Mr. Chair? Please. Thank you. And thank you again for the, for the sponsor, Ms. Towns Representative Townsend, and everyone here in the audience. Um, always love hearing different sides of, of, a, of an argument um, on any bill whether it feels patriotic or doesn't feel patriotic. I know that everyone here has a, has a voice, so thank you. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna have to vote nay on this bill simply because you know I have a lot of uncertainties in, in the process and I don't think I'm getting a lot of clarification in terms of how do we re even recall delegates um, from the Constitutional Convention should it happen. Um, what's the what's what's the precedent there? There is no precedent. I haven't. There hasn't been anything done since we had the U.S. Constitution, and you know the the so that's that's a big question for me. You know there has there hasn't been an Article Five convention since we've had the Constitution, and you know I'm re I'm relying on some of the legal scholars and I'm relying on some of the some of the other individuals in, in here, um, and also doing the research on my own, and you know. I just need a whole lot more information on this topic and it, and it needs to right now I'm not getting I'm not getting a whole lot no, nothing feels comfortable nothing feels um, it does feel somewhat like a runaway convention and I think we've I don't think my my concerns have been answered and and um, so I'm gonna have to vote nay on this representative Payne mr. chairman uh, make a few comments all right. I'd like to ask a question as well. Please. Uh, does this go all hand in hand with HB 2226? Um, they're, they're separate. They're separate calls. Um, the way that uh, Article 5's work is um, the Secretary of the House in, in uh, Washington, D.C. actually is uh, w the person, the recipient of any Article 5 calls from the states. And so, uh, so for example, uh, if they receive, they'll receive our Article 5 calls uh, if we pass them today. And uh, then they compare those uh, to the ones that they've already received and the ones that they receive from other states. So, you can, so uh, my my bill, uh, for example, HCR two two or two zero zero six, um, it can uh, any one of the ideas in there uh, can be applied as a as a subject for a uh, convention to to the states. And so, when you're looking for thirty four states uh, requesting a particular subject, then um, it's kind of mix and match, you know, between uh, the various calls that the states have sent in. Hopefully that answers your question. Uh, and some. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I really do like the, uh, the HB 2226 much more than these others. I, I like the idea that it has a deadline in it of a seven years. I like the idea. I like the way it spells out that we pick delegates. Uh, and who they are, rather than the other ones leaving this wide open. Um, 
So I'm 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 going to pass. Thank you. Representative Stringer. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. May I explain my vote? Uh, I'll be very brief. The hour is late. We spent a lot of time on this. Uh, first, I want to do thank the uh, the witnesses that came forward. Every single one of them seemed well prepared and had something uh, important to contribute. So I do want to thank everyone who testified. I am going to endorse uh, the comments uh, of uh, Representative Grantham and Campbell, uh, and I am going to vote uh, yes. I'm going to vote uh, aye on this on this proposal, on this piece of legislation. Um, I think that the witnesses pointed out some, some very uh, serious issues. I, th I commend the two professors that came forward, Marcus, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the other lady's name, but uh, I thought they both raised very good uh, points. But um, I think our country is broken, and I think bold action is needed, and we cannot allow ourselves to be distracted by academic hair splitting, and I think that's what you folks were doing. They were good questions, but I think that a lot of it is academic hair splitting. I uh, strongly support this uh, proposal, and I vote yes. Thank you. Re Representative Fincham. Mr. Chairman, can I briefly explain my vote? Please. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, this is not an either-or uh, choice. Uh, there are a couple of good options that we have, and uh, I am going to vote uh, for both of them just because uh, it's going to advance the conversation. A couple of very good points made. Uh, this body's got to say no to, to federal money, but that takes a long time. I mean, we have somehow found ourselves with past administrations and past uh, bodies that, yeah, we want to take every care of everybody for, for every little thing that happens. Well, as a state that's only got 13% of our land in our control, we don't have that option. We are treated unequally by the other states, and hopefully we'll have a change to that in the near future. You know, the states are in a parental relationship. We don't act like it very much. Uh, we gave power to the federal government. This is an opportunity for us to take power back in an orderly process uh, while I, I admire somebody for saying that they would love to have us nullify things, it's not a very orderly process. And quite frankly, even though it's there, I believe that the Article 5 was put there for this exact purpose. So with that, I am a strong yes. Representative Blanc? <clears throat> oh, my gosh. I'm processing everything that's been going on. Um, I want to say. Did you want to make a comment? Oh, I, I apologize, Mr. Chair. Yes, may I make a comment, please? please. Thank you. My apologies. Please actually, explain your vote. Thank you. Yes, I will explain it thoroughly as best as I can. Um, so, I keep hearing a lot of different things, and um, I think that's why I'm trying to process everything I'm hearing. I want to thank the professors who were really phenomenal. Um, I would like to sit down with you and learn more, maybe pick your brain. Um, but one of the things. It was in reference to our current constitution is a product of a runaway convention, which was called to amend the Articles of Confederation. That call to convention specifically limited the delegates to amending the Articles of Consideration, which the delegates ignored. It was a weak association of sovereigns to some degree. Um, as to opposed to a strong federal system. So the short story in this is that the predecessor of the Constitution was torn up in a runaway convention, I believe. Um, and I, 
am struck by the language that we continue to use. Um, I heard that we shouldn't be afraid um, to do the right thing and vote yes. Um, I've heard that uh, we are sick and tired of politicians uh, running away and creating their own rules and laws. And I must remind us that it is the voters who continue to elect those quote-unquote career politicians. Uh, and I would also venture to say that many of us that sit here um, before this amazing group might even fall under the career politicians. Like, I sit here and I'm listening to people's arguments, and we cannot even agree on what this may or may not do. So if we hear a body of a few cannot agree, can we really trust career politicians who are going to decide that sit in our legislative body who the delegates are going to be to agree on doing what we think is the right thing? And do we really know what the right thing is? Because uh, we can't even agree on it um, here in the state legislature. Um, we are part, potentially, of the problem. I was really blessed to hear uh, former legislator Bluster, who described that uh, they went through this in 1983, and this has been a close to 30-plus year fight, and that it went away after 20 years. And she continues to show up to voice her opinion on something, so we have to respect her historical perspective, because right now what I'm hearing a lot of from my colleagues is opinions, ideologies, without really understanding the true impact that this could really have as a runaway con constitutional convention, nay. Representative Payne. All right, one last time of comments. Yeah. I'm not at all concerned about it. Uh, well, you already made your comment. If, all right. you could, if, Yay. You could, if you could just vote. Yay, aye. Okay, thank you very much. Chairman Thorpe. And I'm going to explain my vote just very briefly. The um, some In answer to your question, there's one part I probably didn't answer is um, some states that have sent uh, Article 5 calls uh, have done so with um, um, expirations built into the language, and some have not. So in other words, they're open-ended. Any state has the opportunity of resending a call at any time. So let's say they send an unlimited one, one without an expiration uh, the next year if they if they choose to vote to actually resend their call, they can do that. So there's flexibility. Um, I, I do have to disagree strongly with uh, a couple comments I've heard uh, referring to uh, the Philadelphia Convention, um, our constitutional convention, as being a runaway. Um, first off, uh, um, later our president of the United States, uh, uh, George Washington, was actually in charge of the convention. And then you had people like uh, John Adams at the convention. You had uh, um, uh, Mason. You had uh, Madison, of course. You, uh, you, know, you had these, all these very, very distinguished individuals at that convention. And they were in constant communication with Washington. 
uh, as that convention went forward. And it was decided fairly early on. And communications, there's documentation of the communications between the convention and Washington that, um, and I'm talking about Washington, uh, you know, where Congress was, that uh, they felt that uh, the Articles of uh, Confederation uh, would not be, uh, it would not be very easy to fix the problems that they were experiencing. And so that's why they went on with a, um, uh, and actually drafted a new uh, constitution for our country. And that constitution was uh, not without uh, um, controversy. You know, we had the um, the Federalist Papers, which were, you know, articles in the newspaper, you know, debating whether they should be ratified or not. And there were a, a number of uh, states that, uh, that would not agree to ratifying the constitution unless there was a guaranteed Bill of Rights. So it wasn't a done deal, but to call it a, a runaway, I... I kind of feel it's very repugnant to say that as far as uh, the convention that actually brought us the Constitution that we live under and our supreme law, and especially under such noted individuals uh, that were uh, in charge of that convention. And with that, I vote aye. All right, members, with your, with your vote of six ayes, three nays, zero present and zero absent, you've given HCR 2010 a due pass recommendation. Thank you for listening to the Convention of States Legacy Podcast. To learn more about our grassroots movement, go to www.conventionofstates.com.